Good morning. I want you to turn with me to uh, John chapter 17. It's the high priestly prayer of Christ. As I told the first group in first service, I used to to listen to preachers and they ask you to turn to a certain chapter and a certain verse, and before you can even get your thumb in your Bible, they're already reading. So I always said I'll try and give a person time to get there before I start talking. When we get there, just give me an amen. What we have here is basically we're seeing Jesus at a, at a moment where he is very grieved right now. And the reason being is not because of the physical effect that he's going to go through, although it was brutal. The scriptures tell us that he was beat beyond recognition. But the most heaviest part that Christ felt was the fact that he was going to pay a debt that no man on the face of this planet could pay before a holy and a righteous God. I want you to think about that. Because we look at sin so, it's just, just another thing that, that society does. It's just something that, that's a part of society. And being a body of Christ, we should be that light, that example in a world that's so dark. And so in, in this prayer, he, he goes on and he gives a list of things, a list of things that, that's close to his heart. But the main thing you will hear him say throughout this whole prayer is that the world may believe that you sent me and that he's praying for future believers, us. Until the last Gentile is brought in, he's talking about us all the way up. Okay. So what I want to do is what I did this morning in first service is First, I want to read the whole chapter so you can get a, just get a feel of what he's saying and what he's going through and how he feels in this moment. And it starts at John chapter 17, and he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all who you, him, you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in that truth that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, 
that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If you look at John 17, we are witnesses of Jesus' prayer before he's arrested. And if you look at the first two parts, there are prayers for himself to the Father. Father, glorify me so that you may glorify, be glorified. You notice where the emphasis is being put? It's not on even him and himself, even though he's God in the flesh. He's putting the emphasis on the Father. They, all the emphasis is on him. So he says, Father, glorify me as I glorify you, that you may be glorified. So we see this, and we also see that in John uh, verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all future believers and or Christ, followers of Christ. In other words, this is the breakdown. In the first five Verses, Jesus' prayer is from him to the Father, that the Father be glorified in him and him in the Father. Okay? Verses 6 through 19 is his prayer for the immediate disciples, that they have come to know him, that they have come to know exactly who Jesus is and believe that God had sent him. They, they believe that. And then in verses 20 through 26 in his prayer for those who will believe in him. So let's look first at John Chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So this is the question that I posed in the first service. I, he keeps saying over and over that the world may believe that you sent me. One of the ways that the world is supposed to see that God had sent his son is through us, through the body of believers. How many of us right now are actually doing that? How many of us are actually being that light that Christ has called us to be? 
You don't see that too often. You don't see that unity. In fact, you see a lot of stabbing. You see a lot of judgmental. You see a lot of uh, Christians, those who say that they're Christians, that act just like the world. I mean, if, if what you're saying out of your mouth about professing Christ does not match up to your life, then there is a problem. There, there is a serious problem there. One is the fact that through our lives, as we will see here as we go through the scriptures, through our lives, other people that's unbelievers shall see Christ in us. Through that unity, through that love, through that expression of love that Christ is showing us here in scripture in his prayer. So he says, I don't pray for the world, but I pray for those you have given me out of the world. So is this a specific prayer for certain people? Yes. It is. Because he's saying, he just said, I'm not praying for those that's in the world. They don't want to hear Jesus' prayer for them because they are of the world. He's praying for those that the Father had given him before this world was even created. This is what he's saying. That's why it's so amazing to me. When I first realized what he was saying here, I called Jason, and I couldn't hold it. It was like, man, I've read this over and over and over again, but now I finally see what he's doing. He's praying for future, but he's praying for us and all of those who's going to believe after us. Now, here's here's the deal. There is none of us who's deserving to believe because there's nothing in us that's good. A lot of people don't like hearing that. Why? Because it's a conviction of yourself. It's, sin was brought in, as Romans 5.20 says, sin was brought in so that sin may abound, but where sin abound, grace abound evermore, or super abound. Okay? So a person don't like to hear that they're sinful. They don't, they don't want to hear that because in ourselves we think that there's something good within us a lot of times. So Christ goes and he says, I have praying for these that are not of this world, but those you have given me out of the world. So now the success of the word preached, God promised, if you turn with me to Isaiah 55, and we'll just, just keep your hand in John 17. We're going to kind of skip around a little bit. Isaiah chapter 55, we'll start at verse 11. Amen. The word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So what is he saying here that The Messiah came basically as the very word of the Most High. He came as the very word of the Most High in the flesh. So he trained the original disciples by his life and by his teaching. I want to stop right there. By his life and by his teaching. It's predicated back to what I was saying at first. By Jesus' life, not only did he teach his disciples, he also lived out what he was teaching. So not only did he talk the talk, he also walked the walk. I'm, I'm sure you guys have probably heard that saying. But he didn't just teach it, he, he walked it. He lived by example. For, not only for the present disciples, but for us today. 
and those who will continue, those who will believe later. But it's a perfect example of what he's doing because he's not only teaching and living his life, but he's showing an expression of who God is. He's showing an exact example of who God is here. If you look, he's, he's, by his amazing atoning death and resurrection, his ascension and sending of the Holy Spirit so that the disciples would be thoroughly and completely equipped for the mission of sharing the gospel throughout the world. That, that was one of the things that, that God is saying here in Isaiah 55, 11, is a precept to John 17. He's saying that whatever his word goes out from his mouth, it will accomplish what he desires. What he desires, not what we desire. There's been times, I gave this example earlier, where I was testifying to people or ministering to people, and I said, why in the world did I just say that to them? That didn't make any sense to me. I'm saying this, I'm saying this in the flesh because it didn't. But what does Isaiah 55:11 says? My word does not come back to me empty. So it's not what I desire, it's what he desires. Now, the present disciples will proclaim the gospel to others with success. So if we go back to John 17 and we look at verse 20, Jesus prays for those who will believe in me through their word, in him through their word. So it would be inevitable that the preaching, the preaching of the gospel would be successful because it is the very work of God to do so. The building of his kingdom is God's program, bringing under his rule those he has ordained from before the foundations of the world to be his children, to serve him forever. To be, it's an honor. It is absolutely an honor to be called the children of God. How sinful man to be called the children of God. How does that take place? How does sinful man become the children of God? By the cross. Everything we need for salvation, God provides. It is a supernatural work of God, not of human, not of man. I want us to clearly understand that. That salvation, faith, you can't generate faith. You can't lock yourself in a room and say, I'm going to believe tomorrow. I'm going to make myself believe. You can't make yourself repent. These are gifts. These are gifts of the Most High. And these are gifts he gives us for salvation because these are the things he requires. He's going to equip you for everything you need for salvation. He's going to equip you for everything you need for salvation. So, if it's the building of the kingdom and it's the very work of the Most High to do so, uh, the building of his kingdom is, like I say, is God's program and bringing under his rule those he has ordained from before the foundations of the world. Now, let's talk about unity or oneness. If you look at verse 21, Jesus again speaks of the unity or oneness of the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father. And this same type of unity or oneness displayed in all the disciples. So listen to verse 21. He says that they all may be one. That is, all believers as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. There is an assurance here, first of all, and what is that? That all true followers of Christ will be one in the same way that the Father and the Son are one. That is the thing here. All believers constitute and make up the body of Christ. All, from that point all the way into the last, when the last Gentile is brought in all constitute the body of believers. They have been born into the kingdom of the Most High so that they would be one with the Father and one with the Son. Secondly, 
This is not merely an invisible or spiritual unity in the world. But it would be visible in the world so that unbelievers would be drawn to Jesus and believe that the Father sent him. This is a remarkable verse because the Most High is telling us that the unity of believers is a witness to the world. That unity is a witness. So this is an assurance for believers. But also the unity of believers is an instrument of God in an ungodly world. See, these Creflo dollars, these Joel things, I stay on them. I do, because first of all, the Bible says this, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. They need to be exposed for the deeds that they're doing. It's all about money. This word of faith in this, in this prosperity gospel, that you name it and claim it and touch it and it's yours, or you can speak things into existence. The only one that can speak anything into existence is God the Father. And they have people believing that. So the people that's sitting up under these Joel Osteen's and these Creflo dollars are not victims. They're the judgment of God upon them because they want exactly what these preachers are preaching about. They want the same thing. Go get a car. Go get this. Go get a house. Go get a nice house. And it makes me sick to hear somebody say, oh, you got a nice home and you got a nice car and you got a good job. And the only thing you're lacking is Christ. Are you kidding me? And I was... When the Lord was putting this on my heart, I, he caused my memory to go back when I was a kid. And I grew up in the South. And this is very infamous in the South. You have the preachers, they'll get up there and they give the altar call. They give this invitation. The music starts to play. So they're dealing with emotions. Okay? When the music plays, it, it, music has an effect on people. Certain music you hear spark up certain stimuli in the brain. They know this. This is all a tactic. So they play this music, the people come down the aisle, and they make this emotional decision. And they say this prayer as if it's some hocus-pocus that you do for salvation. And so then these trained people sit down in the front, and they write their name down, and they, and they you know, put their numbers down. And then the preachers stand them up before the crowd and say, oh, welcome, we have a new brother in Christ. They haven't discipled this guy. They haven't showed him the scriptures. They haven't prayed with this guy. They haven't did anything, but they've announced him to be saved. And that preacher that's doing that should spend more time studying the Bible and less time preaching out of it. And like I said in first service, I'm not saying this because I'm mean-spirited. I'm saying this because I want us to see the love of Christ and what he has given his body. Whatever happened to preaching that, as soon as somebody walks through that door, the Holy Spirit is so convicting, so strong, that they're going to do one or two things. Either they're going to turn around because their conviction of their sin is so hard, or they're going to sit down because they want a solution to their salvation. They want a solution to their sin. Whatever happened to preaching like that? The Charles Spurgeons, the George Whitfields, you know, people of this nature. So this is not merely an invisible or spiritual unity, but one that would be visible in the world so that unbelievers would be drawn to Jesus. Okay? The world may believe that you sent me. Go with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Just go back seven chapters. This is an amazing thing that Jesus says here. Just keep your finger in John 17. We'll be going back there. 
chapter 10, verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Listen to verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So I pose another question. What is this? What is he saying here? First, he's showing us that there is a pattern of unity that is characteristic of the father and the son and the son and the the body of Christ. It's characteristic. He's showing us this example, but he keeps saying it over and over. I and you, you and I, I and the church, the church and me. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. He says it all through John. It's a pattern of unity that, that is characteristic of the father and the son. So verse 22, go back to John 17. Verse 22 goes on to explain, and he says, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. So the glory of God is his revelation of himself. That's his glory. So if he's going to save man, is it because of man? No. There's nothing inherently good in man. When God looks at sinful man, the only thing our sin motivates God to do is judge us, to condemn us. So if he's going to save people, it is not found in that people. It is in spite of people. Hmm. So, as I said, it's a pattern of unity that is characteristic of the Father and the Son. And so he goes on to say that the glory which you gave me, I have given them. So it seems like he's given them an assignment to do also. And they followed it to the T. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, it's God's activity and works among his people. In this manifestation, manifestation, God is revealed for who he is. Okay? And God's self-disclosure is in the person of Christ and is brought to full witness in his life and works as the mediator on the cross for the salvation of mankind. Those who will believe in the work of the Son shall share the glory of God in knowing him through his revealed redemption. He has revealed this wonderful work of redemption. See, a person will not fully know who they are or what they have in Christ until they first realize who they are and what they do not have apart from Christ. That's a recognition of sin. Because what we don't have when we don't have Christ, John 3.36 says it to the T. He who has the Son has life. But he who does not have the Son does not have life. And the wrath of the Father abides upon him. That's what you have apart from Christ. In Christ, we have all these things that we're going through now. And what he prays about in his priestly prayer in John 17. Wonderful kingdom. A work to do for him. He has called us to do that as his body. One of the ways that the glory of the Most High was manifested in Jesus was through his servanthood. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Christ went to that tree at Calvary to reveal the, the glory, the God's glory and his grace. So we are called to serve him 
and others in humility. That is part of the, gl- the glory of God in us, not to be wished, worshipped, and adored, but to be followers of and imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do is to imitate him. But we have so many people imitating the world. Oh, I'm a follower of Christ. And as soon as they say that, they go right out and talk just like the world, do just as the world does. So the world is looking on at these so-called believers, and they're saying, what are they offering me? They're doing the same things I'm doing. They're talking like I do. They act like I do. They engage in the same conversations I engage in at work. They engage in the same conversations. There's no, there's no light there being, being shined in any place. And it's sad. It really is. So I'll turn with me, these imitators of the Lord, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's see what the Apostle Paul says about this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and give and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Now, let's talk about unity perfected. The pattern of unity is perfected in unity and in love. So go back to John chapter 17 with me and go to verse 23. He says, I am them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in oneness and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you loved me. So the manner of, of the union of believers is that the Son is in the Father and it is, it, it is by him that the faithful or believing are united with the Father. Not that they pass from one to the other, but because they find the Father and the Son. It's by Jesus Christ's revelation of himself that we find the Father. Again, notice that God's kingdom purposes are at work here. It's it's not for selfish or self-serving purposes, but so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. That's what's at work here. And that Christ proceeds from the Father, and that Christians would be so caught up into the work of Christ that the love of the Father and the Son is displayed so strong that the world will want what Christians have. The world will want that. The most highest love is not like the world's love. As I said this morning, the world's love is saying that a man can marry a man, a woman can marry a woman, um, and the list goes on and on. And that is a sick definition of love. It's twisted. That's Satan's definition. He puts in the minds of people. Again, I'm I'm not aiming at certain People, I'm not aiming at certain things. I'm just giving examples of how sick this world is and how much the world needs Christ. So, because he wills to give himself to those who are inferior to himself, believers find their eternal security, contentment, and fulfillment being loved by the Almighty himself with the very same love that the Father has always had for his Son, and the Son for the Father. It is the indwelling of Christ and God's perfect love which proclaims God's mission to the world. What is God's mission to the world? To proclaim Christ. Same thing the disciples did. 
We have the same tools, the same, it's the same God, the same spirit. We have the same things and we can proclaim the same things to the world. Yet a lot of us don't do it. Christ has come to redeem a fallen people for himself and to know that this was planned from before the world was even created should give us the greatest assurance that the Father's plan and purpose for our lives was in his hands before we were even born. This was already planned. I'm trying to still wrap my mind around the fact that eternity, like eternity past, eternity present, eternity future, yet he works in time and space. That is amazing to me. Hmm. So Christ has become to redeem a fallen people and to know that this was planned before, before the foundations of the world. What great love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called children of God. Now, let's talk about beyond the present. We've talked about the disciples and, and God's prayer in the first five verses of John 17. We've talked through 6 through 19 about the disciples and the inevitable plan and the most highest word being accomplished and his goals being accomplished through the disciples. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God's ascension into heaven, the ascending of the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk uh, beyond the present. Let's look at verse 24. Let's focus on verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me from before the foundation of the world. Jesus' prayer for unity and love includes holiness as the church while on earth. But also, also he is yearning for God's heavenly glory. Jesus prays for the time when the saints on earth will behold the eternal glory of Jesus, the Son, which has been his for eternity, all through eternity past. He prays for the time when believers will witness the splendor and majesty which belong to Jesus in the heavenly realms, not just the glory of his lowly service while in the flesh, it is the glory to which he would soon return. In verses 25 and 26, he says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have not known that you sent me, and I have to declare to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. When he says, O righteous father, what he's doing is he's appeal, he appeals to God's justice and to his righteousness. He, he appeals to that. Here's the distinction that's made between those who accept and receive the, the work of Christ in their lives and those of the hostile world who reject the work of Christ. A distinction is made by the Lord Jesus in his prayer between those who believe in Jesus and the hostile world which rejects him. There is a story about Creflo Dollar I was sharing this morning. I'm back to him again. Where he was saying that in his mega church, he has probably about 50,000, 60,000 people in this church. He was saying that tithes, if a person tithes, they go to heaven. If they don't tithe, they go to hell. So he's giving this example to his congregation, and he's saying he wants to put up these computers when you first walk into this church, and you sit down at these slots, and you pay your tithes, and this certain song comes on, and then you're allowed to go into the church. Then those who don't pay their tithes, there's a big message that comes across the screen. It says, crook, 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 and it says, access denied. He's telling this to his congregation. And so those, he said, we got a door on the side because we don't want to disturb church while this is going on. We take these people out the side door. And we have a ditch dug, 
And then we shoot him in the head and we throw him in this ditch. And he has people sitting up under him listening to this, laughing while he's, while he's saying it. And then, in 2012, three years later, a man walks up in his church and kills one of his congregation. Yeah. So, the blasphemy that comes out of these people's mouth is, is, is overwhelming. It's absolutely astounding. We pray also for, for love and for the unity of the church and for unbelievers to be drawn to Christ. But we also need to pray that the people see the wrath of God, that they have, they have some, a, a, a recognition of sin and what sin is, how repugnant it is to a holy God. It, it, it saddens me to see that, that these people will sit upon the people like that. So, O oh righteous Father, it appeals to the Father's righteousness and to his justice. Here's the distinction that's made between those who accept and receive the work of Christ in their lives and those of the hostile world who reject the work of Christ. So a distinction is made by the Lord Jesus in his prayer between those who believe in Jesus and the hostile world which rejects him. Jesus acknowledges that his disciples have understood that he was sent from the Most High. They had come to understand that God had come to dwell in the midst of his people. The hostile world, on the other hand, has rejected the truth about Jesus, and so they would be condemned for unbelief. They were, on that day, Jesus says in Matthew 7, Matthew 7, he says, There will be many on that day that says, Lord, Lord, in thy name have we done many wonderful works, and in thy name cast out demons, and in thy name did this and that. And you know what he will say to them? Depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. In other words, he's saying, depart from me, you who call yourself my disciples, but lived on the earth as if I never gave you a law to obey. Depart from me. Is he saying that he never knew them? Of course, he made them. He's saying in a relational way is what he's saying here. It's a relationship. And that's probably the most scariest words I can say that's probably in the Bible. If he says that to a person, depart from me. Knowing that the love of God, hell is everything God is not. Hate, torment, torture, pain, anguish for eternity. It never ends. Jesus spoke more on hell than he did anything. Why? He didn't want anybody to go there. His main thing was repent and believe. And here's the deal. It's not that you can just lock yourself up in a room and say, tomorrow I'm going to repent and I'm going to believe. These are gifts from God. We cry out to him in an urgent prayer, as Jesus did here, as an example. So, he says, I have declared to them our name and will declare it, that the love which you love me may be in them and I in them. So the work of the gospel will continue until all of God's people have been gathered in Christ. All of them. Christ himself will continue to indwell his people, the true church, and so God would dwell in the midst of his people. 
We also have to keep in mind that these believers that was in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry and those who, like he put it, will believe in him, this work was done by the Father from before the foundations of the world. Now, I know a lot of people don't, don't like to hear anything about predestination. It actually offends a lot of people. And like I say most of the time, the gospel saves souls and the gospel also offends souls. It's the truth. So, like I said, a lot of people don't like hearing that, but why is that? Why do some people don't like hearing that God had your best interest at heart before he created anything? Why would you not want that in his hands? It's because God is sovereign. And the thought that God is sovereign, people don't like that control. They like to have their control over their own lives. Some like to think that they're in control of everything. For some, it may be selfishness. Whatever the case may be, and no matter what we think, he is God and he's God all by himself. And his word will accomplish the reason for which he sent it. It is a thread of truth woven throughout scripture described and revealed as God's love toward his covenant people. And it's not only displayed, it's displayed clearly in Christ's redemptive work. So, listen to this for a minute. Whatever is true remains to be true, even if no one believes it. And what is false remains false, even if everyone believes it. It goes back to say that until a person realizes what they don't have when they're apart from Christ, is the only way they're going to realize how repugnant and how sinful we really are. There is no goodness in us whatsoever. And this is the reason why a lot of people don't like to hear that God is soft. Because somewhere deep down, they've been taught by these preachers that there's some good somewhere down in them. There's a song that says, why would God, what did God see in me that was so good? And this preacher that was preaching that sermon got up before the congregation and he said, I'd like to just say something about that song. There was nothing in you that was good. It's because he's good. So, Jesus is deity. He is God incarnate. God in the flesh. His word declares this. His word declares that there is no one way to God for forgiveness, that there is only one way to God for forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life in his kingdom under the sovereign rule of God. That is through the Lord Jesus by faith. The glory of God is revealed in the unity of the church through the love of God in the church through the mission of the church. So, there is a coming a day, the scripture says, when the righteous God will judge both the living and the dead. The Jesus who died that you might believe will rightfully and righteously be judged, be the judge. He is the truth. God's word is true. This will remain true, though some may debate it, excuse their belief, justify their anger or lack of forgiveness or love. And even if no one would believe it, God's truth still remains true. If the entire world should reject the truth, it still remains to be true. Now, what or who is this word of God? Go to with me to Revelations chapter 19, verse 11.
Revelations chapter 19, verse 11. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The word of God. We see that clearly in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. We see it clearly. So, when he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, he is truth. That's what he's talking about. Huh. So, what we have, like I said, is characteristic. It's a pattern of love and unity displayed between the Son and the Father and the Son and the Father in us, in the church, as the unity of us being in Christ. So, as I said, he's talking about himself, and when he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, it's, it's him. He's the word of God. That's his name that no one seems to know. We see that in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We see it in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He says it, but we read it and we still don't see it. That's because we're so blinded a lot of times by Satan's deception. And we make this God up with our own mind and we take that mindset into Scripture and we pull out of Scripture what we want to pull out of Scripture based on the God that we've created with our own hearts and our own mind, which is idolatry. We still do it today just like the people of Israel does it. We make ourselves a lot of gods. And what is an idol? Anything you put before God. Now, I, I want to close with Revelations 21, because this, this prayer that Jesus says in John chapter 17, he says, I want them to see my glory, which I have from eternity past, that I've had with you before the world even existed. He had this very glory that he's talking about. So Revelations chapter 21, and you just remember that, that, that John is writing this again to the churches, to all the churches. So he says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he would dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself would be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderous, sexual, immoral, 
Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You drop down to verse 23. Jesus is explaining this glory that's coming down. And if you notice the metaphor that he's comparing the church to a, like a bride, how beautiful that is. He says in verse 23, he says that the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is his light. And the nation of those who are saved shall walk in his light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut all day. There shall be no light there. No night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of nations into it. But there shall be by no means anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now turn with me to Revelations 22. We'll start at verse 12. And he says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that is, he's given us right now how it's going to be. No more death, no more sorrow, no more backstabbing. No more pain. It's kind of hard right now in this world we live in to imagine something like that. So much, you know, anger and and brutal and (laughs) lovers of self and ungodliness but then proclaiming that they're believers and you see all these things and but Paul also says edify each other with these words lift each other up with these words it's the unity that we must show in Christ to the world so we must study to show ourselves approved unto God a workman need not be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth rightly dividing the word of truth not what the world considers what's true what God says in his word is true. May the grace and love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a sinner like myself to give an opportunity to be chosen by you is a love and a grace that's unspeakable. Father, I pray for this body of believers that we may go out and proclaim the gospel no matter what the consequence may be. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the love that is displayed in your Son and that you have shown us not only in our daily lives but at that cross, Heavenly Father. Your love and your mercy was displayed in the fullness of the person of Christ. So not only was your justice satisfied, but now you can justify sinners. 
by the finished work of Christ on that tree at Calvary. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every opportunity that we have to proclaim your son to the world. Heavenly Father, I thank you for everything and everything that you provide for us on a daily basis. It's only by your grace and mercy that we're even here. Yet we take so many things for granted. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.